Hello and welcome to The Wound Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name is Rod Murray, and together with my co-host and the real brains behind this operation, Dr. Francis Henshaw, we aim to learn and educate about every facet of wounds. Dr. Fran, we're welcoming back one of our favourite guests today to talk about the topic of wounds. Fill the listeners in on who we're talking to and what we're talking about. Hi, Rod. Yes, today we're very blessed to be joined by Dr. Kate McBride. Kate is an epidemiologist. She looks a lot at chronic disease and she works at the School of Medicine at Western Sydney University. Welcome, Kate. Hello, Fran. Hello, Rod. Hello, Kate. Always a joy when we have you on, I must say. You are, we don't play favourites in the media, Kate, but you're one of my favourites. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Fran, what are we talking about today with Kate? Well, today I thought we would have a little peep into the world of pressure injuries. So, Kate, what do you know about pressure injuries? I think I know a lot about a lot of things, but I actually know absolutely nothing about pressure injuries, quite frankly. What are you frankly. doing on our show then? Well, I'm here to find out more about pressure injuries because I know that you're our wound expert and I'd love to hear more. So tell me, what are they? So... A pressure injury really is a localised damage to skin and sometimes the underlying soft tissue over a bony prominence. So that's things like heels, um, your sacrum, um, which is a bit um, at the bottom of your spine, uh, people's shoulders. And, you know, what happens is when people are immobile for a while, the combination of pressure and sometimes shearing stress as well causes damage to the tissues. Okay, so it sounds as though people who are perhaps lying down for a long time get pressure injuries, which I kind of knew. And I must admit, I do know that um, we are seeing a a few more pressure injuries because of COVID and with patients being hospitalised for quite long amounts of time. Yeah. If I can just ask as a layperson, how long are we talking? How long do you need to be sort of bedridden or immobile for before you need to worry about the possibility of a pressure injury, Fran? Well, that's a good question because um, there's various factors that kind of increase your risk for getting a pressure injury. So like the microclimate of your skin, for example. So if you lie somebody down on a plastic sheet and their skin would sweat and it wouldn't get absorbed, that would break down more quickly than if they're on a more absorbent material. Someone's general health and nutrition status, um, certain medical conditions, loss of feeling in people's uh, limbs might cause them not to move them enough and then they are more prone to getting a pressure injury there and um, the general condition of the skin you know if it's too dry or as we said before too too wet then uh, it's more likely to break down so we know that this breakdown can actually start in less than four hours and wow. um, you know often People in, for example, operating theatres, if they're on, on the table for a lot longer than they should have been and nobody kind of had put things in place to try and prevent them from getting a pressure injury, that's quite a common occurrence. That's really interesting. I actually didn't realise they were such, you know, they could um, occur so acutely. So are all pressure injuries the same or are there different types or stages? Well, that's an interesting question. And um, the thing is, is that when we see something that we think might be a pressure injury, like all types of wounds, it's really important that we can assess it properly, classify it. And that way we can actually determine what is the best type of treatment for it. Sorry, friend, you mentioned earlier heels. Is it only people who are bedridden who we need to think? You mentioned the heel. I'm just wondering how the heel with being, you can understand how somebody on their back, the shoulders and the, the obvious contact points with a bed 
Are there heels among that, or are there other ways that you can get a pressure injury on the heel? I, I immediately think of a blister because I'm a simpleton. Yeah, I mean, often it's around the back of the heels where they're actually lying on the bed right. that you would get a pressure injury. Um, but people, for example, who are in wheelchairs um, usually have mm. to have very high-tech cushions. Otherwise, they might get a pressure injury on their hip or their bottom or something like that. So there's various places that you that you can get them. People quite frequently get them around their nose or their ears from um, medical devices. So this is a different type of pressure injury called a medical device-related injury. And um, we've all seen those pictures of um, nurses who've been working for a long time wearing PPE and they've got um, quite nasty skin breakdown from wearing face masks and goggles. So when we first see something starting to happen, we usually see what's called non-blanchable erythema of intact skin. So this is known as a stage one pressure injury. And basically, the skin goes red. And when you press it, it's non-blanchable. What does that mean to you, Kate? I'm thinking about cooking now, Fran. I'm <laughs> blanching something, sorry. But I guess non-blanchable um, is if uh, you press it, then the colour doesn't change. It goes white. Yeah, so it doesn't go white. It so when something white, blanches, yeah. um, then it, it goes a lighter colour. So it doesn't change colour when you press it, basically. So when we do see this discoloration, it's usually a redness. If we see like a purple or a maroon colour, or as the Australians like to say, maroon colour um, yes. discoloration, well I like said. to be like bilingual. Yeah, after 23 years here, I'm, I'm going quite well. Um, so if it's this purplish, darker colour, this might be indicative of something called a deep tissue injury, which is something that I'll be talking about with Bill McGuinness. So if it's just normal red and it is non-blanchable, you've probably got a stage one pressure injury if it's over a bony prominence. Is that serious, Fran, a stage one pressure? Or is that the sort of thing you get from having your spectacles on for too long, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, really, that's kind of the first sign of inflammation that is showing you that the skin's not happy. And generally at that situation, if you can remove the pressure um, that's over the area, then you would be okay. So, you know, Rod, you wear your spectacles for a few hours, your nose starts getting red, you take your specs off, you go to bed the next morning, your nose is all recovered, isn't it? We don't see all our um, spectacle wearers wandering around with, um, you know, Convitec dressings plastered across their face, which is a great shame in some ways. But testimony to the fact that the body is quite good at repairing itself most of the time. Um, and it's quite an interesting thing because in aged care, for example, it's compulsory to actually do audits to check for pressure injuries. And um, guess what? You'd know this as an epidemiologist, Kate, because you like counting stuff. When you start looking for things, what happens? <laughs> you find them. You find them. So it's a funny thing about being uh, looking for stuff. Sometimes they turn up. So if you go for, for example, a health check, often you can find lots of things. It's really great. It's a natural uh, phenomenon. Yeah, is that, is that the, why men don't go to the doctors? <laughs> exactly <laughs> right, Frank, you've got it. <laughs> and we're busy. You've got teenage boys, Kate. You would know that if, if they go looking for things, they find them as opposed to standing and looking at the fridge going, I can't see it, which is what they tend to do, isn't it? <laughs> this is very true. But doctors do the same thing, funnily enough. So, you know, because as Fran said, with pressure injuries, some of them might actually go and detect it. But if you actually start going having a good look round, you, you, I assume that you're going to find quite a few. 
Yeah, it's quite interesting because you see a lot of these um, studies that people do where they put in very elaborate plans to reduce the number of pressure injuries. And generally what happens is they put these elaborate plans in and the number of pressure injuries goes up because it's probably the first time they've actually looked for them properly. But there is actually a point to me saying this, and that is that having a higher number of pressure injuries, if they are stage one pressure injuries that can be managed more easily is better than having fewer, more uh, destructive pressure injuries. So after a stage one, we're looking at a stage two pressure injury, which is where the skin started to erode itself. So there's a partial uh, thickness skin loss, and we can't see through to the muscle and the fat or anything like that. But this is the next stage, and that's obviously going to be a little bit more tricky to treat because this is a stage where you probably need to actually do something to get the wound closed up because it's... it's is that going. something closer, Fran, to those pictures you mentioned of the nurses that we see? They've got some of those nurses, some of the pictures you've seen various places have been some really awful-looking mm. um, problems on the skin. Is, is that... A, is that perhaps approaching or is a stage two pressure situation? Yeah, once the skin has been breached, then you're into the territory of a a stage two pressure injury. And sorry, Frank, can I ask, so is it that stage that they need to be treated or will they heal by themselves or does it really depend on the characteristics of who's got that pressure wound? Once you have some exposed dermis and you've broken the skin, you know, you really do need to make sure that you get an appropriate dressing on and also offload the pressure because just putting a dressing on something and then letting someone go and lie back down on a hard bed is probably not going to be enough to heal it. So there's various contraptions that are able to offload these areas. So these are your stage ones and twos. And generally with good care, they will heal relatively easily. But then we move on to our stage three. And this is where we've got full thickness loss of skin. And you can actually see fat underneath. You can often see rolled wound edges. And often there can be quite a lot of slough and ooze and goo and even these thick... These medical terms, Fran, you need to be explain them in lay terms for me. <laughs> 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 ooze and goo, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I imagine there'd be some pain associated with my lunch. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there'd be some pain associated if you get to stage three, I would imagine, Fran. Yeah, they sound awful. Yeah, no, they can be quite nasty at this stage. And... Um, If we've got too much kind of slough in the way as well, or ooze or goo, it can be quite difficult to actually determine how deep these things are. So at this stage, we're really getting into the territory of this could take quite a long time to heal and it could be quite devastating for the patient. But unfortunately, things don't end at stage three. We then have stage four, which is full thickness skin and tissue loss. So this is where we can actually see right down to muscles, tendons, bones, ligaments, fascia. So this is where um, the pressure has caused the skin to erode and the underlying tissues to erode until we're really right down to these structures that should never be exposed. And at this stage, it is very, very difficult to actually get these wounds to heal. I mean, often when we have tendon involvement, the tendon dries out, we have bone involvement, we can get bone infection. You know, these can be really quite catastrophic. And I think the key thing about a lot of pressure injuries is they are preventable. If you're enjoying these episodes and you'd like to be part of a like-minded community, why not join our Facebook group? 
Simply search The Wound Doctors ANZ on Facebook and click the Join Group button. If you'd like to get in touch for anything else, from questions to ideas for future episodes, please feel free to send an email to thewounddoctors at convertech.com. That's thewounddoctors at convertech.com. We look forward to any and all feedback. Now, back to the show. So, Kate, if we had to lie you down in a bed and we only had like a nasty cheap bed, what kind of things might you be able to do to stop yourself getting a pressure injury? Well, I guess the only thing I could probably do is roll over, keep rolling over and changing position. But then I guess if I was immobile, for example, if I'd had some sort of, you know, back injury or spinal injury, or maybe I'm an older person who can't, you know, mobilise as easily, then I guess that's going to be quite tricky. Oh, Dr. McBride, well done. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Thank so, you. Um, this is really important. And there's lots of algorithms and things that um, help us to determine how often people need moving and how they should be moved. And it is, you know, spreading the love. We can't float somebody in the air off the bed, you know, we can't levitate them. So what we have to do is make different parts of their body take the pressure in turn. And then hopefully, there won't be enough pressure on one place for it to start breaking down. But again, you know, just going back to the point, we, you know, we've spoken about previously, but this can be really intensive in terms of actually nursing care, right? Because I know that in COVID wards, for example, it takes maybe up to six nurses to keep changing COVID patients around. So that's one of the impacts that's having on nursing time at the moment is actually turning patients so they don't get pressure wounds. So what what is done in terms of prevention and do we often see quite high rates of these really, you know, nasty stage four pressure injuries, perhaps in aged care, for example? I think that now there is reporting mechanisms that people have to actually count their pressure injuries and they have to report them. This is a very good stick, I suppose, to stop people from letting skin damage escalate to the point of a four stage four pressure injury. So I think with these kind of audits in place, we probably will see a downturn in the number of stage three and four pressure injuries. Are they common, Fran? Stage four, you would hope not. And who might be at risk of getting it? You would imagine in a facility, as you mentioned, a hospital where there is auditing, you'd see a lot less. I would imagine there are many people who are immobile at home who perhaps would be more at risk. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people um, struggle at home and they, you know, you have husbands and wives caring for each other. Well, they're probably not able to turn somebody in the way that they need to. They're probably not doing the surveillance. And often I think we do see these things when people get admitted to hospital, either because they have a catastrophic stage four pressure injury or a stage three pressure injury, or because they go in with something else. And then the injury is uncovered. So what happens if someone does have a you know, stage three, stage four injury? What's the treatment for that or what's the uh, prognosis? So, I mean, the, the treatments for it are really the mainstay is offloading the area and using good quality wound care products. And... Um, We'll probably be talking about that in a in a different show because there's quite a lot of different tips and tricks that can go along with treating these things. But we have to also point out that some 
of these pressure injuries are actually unavoidable. And to me, that, that doesn't really sit well because you're to saying to, that somebody's skin is going to break down. You're like, well, can't you prevent it? But for example, um, I was talking to um, an ICU nurse and she was saying that when they have people who have these very long, complicated neurosurgeries that go on for hours and hours and hours, they're obviously in an operating theatre on an operating table. Um, they've done lots of research and different types of tables and stuff but sometimes it is inevitable that they are going to get a pressure injury but I guess at least you know when someone goes from that kind of surgery into ICU the staff there are cognizant that this is a likely happening and they can actually get to it straight away so there are dressings uh, Convitec makes some um, what we call prophylactic dressings. So these can be stuck to people's sacrum, which is the bottom of their spine or to their backs of their heels. And this can prevent um, pressure injuries. And, and certain patients at a high risk of pressure injuries, this might be a very useful form of treatment. Nasty business, isn't it, Kate? You don't think about this stuff as you go about your daily life, but yeah, I hadn't really thought about them um, progressing so much. I must admit, and mm. I just I think it's really encouraging that there can be some some sort of prophylaxis to try and prevent. You know, we I think having an awareness that pressure wounds are inevitable in some situations, but having that ability to prevent. So you know, we call that primary prevention, where we're actually trying to sort of prevent at the early stage. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it really is one of those things that if you can identify the right people, because obviously you can't just, you know, shove dressings on everybody in every aged care facility and every hospital bed, because whilst uh, that would probably be very good for Convitec's share price, it's probably an unnecessary spend on on those kind of resources. But I think if we can identify people, for example, if you were old, frail, lost the feeling in your feet and had very bony heels, you would probably be a very good candidate for this kind of thing if you were going in for surgery, for example. So yeah, so basically, we've had a little quick look today through our four stages of pressure injuries. And we've kind of learned, I think that whilst most pressure injuries are preventable, a few of them aren't. And that if we get onto these early enough, when they're in stage one, we can actually fix them quite easily. I was just about to ask you something there, Fran, and that is for there'll be people listening here who are carers, nurses and people in those sorts of positions. At what stage do they need to call a wound specialist for a pressure injury? I think the important thing is, is wound assessment, because you don't always know what you're dealing with. And I think that when you don't know what you're dealing with, you really need to get some expertise. So if, for example, you've got a stage two pressure injury that's not very complicated, you can probably, as a carer, be able to put the right treatment in place to be able to heal it relatively easily. But I think that you do need expertise from somebody who can actually put you on the right path. So for example, um, you might need to get the pressure off the area. Well, there's all these different contraptions that are available. You can um, have different kind of heel boots, you can have different mattresses, you can have things that float heels off the bed. Um, and sometimes if you're not really in the know, you might end up buying the wrong things where you're wasting money and it might not do the job. So I think that um, 
anything that's escalated beyond a stage one really does need looking at by a professional. And when we were looking at a stage one, um, which is just the skin is intact, but it's gone red and it doesn't blanch, then we know that you need to still offload the area and probably put um, some kind of a dressing on because the dressing will actually prevent shear as well as pressure. What's shear, by the way? So shear is kind of the moving backwards and forwards. Right, so it sort of rubs it raw. Yeah, you rubbing. Can, like a blister that you might get on your heel yes. when you put on a pair of new shoes, that that's a, that's a shear. Exactly. So, you know, before the blister forms, you would have that kind of hot spot. Well, that's no, almost I, I'm what a, a man, Fran. There's no blister and then there's blister. They're the two stages of a blister. There's nothing in between there where you could have done something about it. You have don't have a blister and then you do have one. That's how they work. Ah, yes. Men have Even different blisters to women. That's I, right. I forgot that, it, that um, we were man blistering. Right. We're medically completely different to you women. Our bodies don't function in anything oh, like that. Oh, we his dog to lick his blisters too. Sorry? Well, it, is, it is good to have a man here who can actually attest to this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably be, you know, hung up for uh, sexism, wouldn't I? But Rod's telling us how it is. I think we've exhausted pressure wounds in terms of what we came to do other to talk about today. Kate, fabulous to talk to you. Always great to have you aboard. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. And Fran, always fabulous to have you along as well. Thank you. Thanks, Rod. 